Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome to The X Factor, the podcast for leaders by leaders. Uh, today, we're going to talk about human performance and women. And the pandemic changed what women want from their companies, including the growing importance of opportunity, flexibility, employee well-being, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Women leaders are switching jobs at the highest rate we've ever seen and at a higher rate than men in leadership. This could have serious implications for companies because women are already significantly underrepresented in leadership. Women leaders are leaving their companies for three primary reasons. One, women leaders face stronger headwinds than men because of constant microaggressions. People openly question their judgment and assume they were promoted due to a quota system rather than talent and results. Second, women leaders are overworked and underrecognized as compared to men. Women have higher rates of burnout because they are assigned work that is not valued or rewarded. And third, women leaders want a better work culture. Women leaders are significantly more likely than men leaders to leave their jobs. <clears throat> they want more flexibility and they want to work for a company that is more committed to employee well-being, diversity, and equity and inclusion. And to help me discuss this uh, today is an old friend. His name is Casey Converse. Welcome, Casey. How are you today? Good. I'm good. I'm sitting in Maui, Hawaii, so life's pretty nice. It's sunny and it smells good here. Well, I'm glad I caught you between ways. So thanks for joining yeah. us. <laughs> okay. So Casey is a swimmer, but he's not just a swimmer. Casey was a four-time U.S. national champion and a U.S. and he represented the United States as uh, for the Olympic 1976 team in Montreal. He was the 1977 NCAA champion and American record holder in the mile. Uh, Casey and I met when we were both working at the Air Force Academy, and he coached back-to-back -back NCAA championship teams there in 1995 and 1996, and has coached national champions, All-Americans, and conference champions throughout his coaching career. He's a member of the City of Mobile of Mobile Sports Hall of Fame, and this is important because if anybody can be included in the same in the same group as Henry Aaron, that deserves mention. And uh, he's he's just a recent inductee of the Air Force Academy Athletics Hall of Fame, and he's also an author of a book called Munich to Montreal. So, Casey, why don't you tell people what what the book is about? Um, I, like you said, I swam in, at the Montreal Olympics and I don't know, it's a long time ago now, but back in those days, East Germany was doping their entire Olympic team and it, it really, um, changed the results in the women's swimming competition as much as, or more than any of the other competitions. So, um, I had a good friend, Shirley Babishoff, who ended up second in five events uh, well, I guess four events. Um, so she has four silver medals and one gold medal in a relay. So the book is about how um, how all that effect, how how that change happened between the the Munich Olympics when East Germany first was uh, experimenting with with some doping, all the way through the Montreal Olympics where they had really perfected their doping technique and um, and the results were just overwhelming. The results on the American side were disappointing, and um, 
I don't want to give away the whole surprise of the book, but there is a good ending to it. And USA Swimming, I was fortunate when I was writing the book, USA Swimming was doing the film about the exact same topic. So I got to tag along with them when we went to uh, East Germany, well, former East Germany, and interviewed Cornelia Ender and some of the other women who had been dope back then. And, you know, you really get a perspective. One of the things that really came out of that experience you get a perspective of how those women were as much victims uh, as as our USA women, probably more so. Mm-hmm. Um, they they didn't really have an option to say no to being being doped and part of this um, sport machine. Uh, East Germany had zero economy in the world; they had zero influence in the world. Mm-hmm. This is a way that um, the government thought they could you know, have some prominence and, and be respected in, on the world stage in Olympic sports. And it went on through the 88 Olympics. Uh, well, it's, well, it, uh, there's a term that just recently ha- has emerged. It's uh, called sport washing, where mm-hmm. um, uh, whether it's universities or countries uh, will use athletes to wash over certain negative attributes of their of their society or, or their organization. And um, prior to my arrival uh, at the Air Force Academy, um, as I was pursuing my PhD at the University of Kansas, I was an adjunct professor and my job, I was actually a, a, an employee of the athletic department where I was the drug education instructor where every athlete was mandated to take my class called Drugs and Sport. And we focus not only on recreational drugs, but also performance enhancing drugs. And this is in the early 90s. And, you know, what what came, you know, what I tried to impart upon those, you know, those young student athletes is it's your choice. Uh, And those choices will have consequences. And so, um, but I basically focused on trying to give them the tools to make the proper choice uh, yeah. because there are, you know, short-term and long-term consequences, negative and positive to using performance enhancing drugs. And it was really interesting to hear what you say is that not only were the, uh, the American women victims, but the East German women were victims because they were mandated to be part of this systemic yeah. doping program. And yeah. But it, it, it shows you how important performance is, is mm-hmm. that, you know, people will resort to cheating. And that's basically what it is, because basically those East German women, you know, if, if you think, at, think about it in a visual term, is that they had a full head start in the water before mm-hmm. the American women could get off the blocks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And the, the USA... Uh, in the in the documentary film, they do a good job of pulling out some images of um, just the physicality of the East German women standing, you know, next to or in close proximity with USA women. And there's just, you know, these are very fit human beings at the top of their sport. And these German women have some of the physicality of a male, just super broad shoulders. I mean, not this is beyond the norm um, and yeah. you can see it and the visual is very, makes a big impact. Well, you know, that's, you know, that's where the, you know, the, the, the chromosomes are being altered because of the, uh, because of the performance enhancing drugs. So, 
it, it, it is something and and you know there I, I call him Joe Sixpack, you know, the, the fan who just doesn't really care mm-hmm. about you know doping and just yeah, wants right. to entertain. Uh but I think yeah. fans are becoming educated to a point where they're realizing that what I'm watching is not real. So why am I watching this? And, you know, it, that has been proven because people start to change the channel. They're not buying the tickets. They're not attending events because they believe that doping is going on. And so it, it, it's in the interest of not only the uh, uh, sport organizations, but also the, uh, uh, the athletes themselves, uh, you know, to basically police themselves. Uh, so... All right, so let's get back to women and and general because uh, okay. from what I recall, um, you were coaching both the men and the women when mm-hmm. when I was at the academy. Then I think in '98 or so, you you just focused on the women. Is is that about the proper right. timeline? And yeah, that's retired? right. Yeah. And when did you retire, Casey? Uh, 2017. Oh well, congratulations. Okay, so you were there for just about thirty years because I you you entered uh, for for the people who don't know Casey Converse uh, uh, was the first um, civilian uh, coach hired yeah. by by the Air Force Academy. Before mm-hmm. then, it was always uh, military coaches, and uh, so uh, I, I have to thank you because if you failed, they probably would have just went back to military people and I, and my job would never been available. So I appreciate you uh, blazing the trail for me there. Problem. I doubt that, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're going to talk about assumptions about women and the needs for, for women and then management applications because Ultimately, uh, Casey, you were, you know, as a coach, you're a manager of, uh, of young women who performed at a very, very high level at a place that was very competitive internally, but also very competitive externally. Mm-hmm. So, right. um, so I appreciate you being here for this. So the primary assumption is that men and women are fundamentally different because of their chromosomes, upbringing, or both. And this has been repeatedly proven to be false. So in your experience, you know, you coach both men and women. Do you see that there's really, what do you see as the difference if there is any? You know, I'll I'll just tell you the, my cocktail party um, answer to that, or maybe my backyard barbecue, which is more likely for me to be at uh, than a cocktail party. But the backyard barbecue answer that I give when people ask me about the difference between coaching men and coaching women is if you have a guy who has a great performance, they come out of the water and they're kind of like, I'm so glad you had the opportunity to coach me. And if a woman comes out of the water and they've had a great performance, their, their friends are happy for them. They come over and they say, thank you, coach. You know, the, we did the kind of the, we did this together kind of thing. Um, and that's just purely anecdotal. It's not, um, it has nothing to do with the chromosomes or, or anything like that. And, and I'm not certain um, why there is that difference. I, I was a high performing male athlete and that was absolutely my, my point of view. You had a, congratulations coach. I'm glad you had the opportunity to coach me. Um, maybe that's a uh, maturity issue or what. 
but I would say that that sort of that stands out to me as a difference between coaching men and coaching women. Okay, is that there's more of a community within the within, within women, and I would say, so. you know, we were talking before before we started recording, and uh, uh, I was telling Casey that you know I, I also published a book you know about Olympians, and um, one of the participants was uh, Mike Candrea, who's the mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, women's softball coach at the University of Arizona, and he had the dominant softball program for many years, and then led the uh, two, uh, uh, the American team to the 2004 uh, Olympic gold medal. And I asked him the same question, and he came back with something really interesting because he coached men in baseball before he coached women in softball. He says, "Well, men have to play good to feel good. But women have to feel good to play good." Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that. Yeah, I was. I, I'm. I'm. I'm glad I got your reaction to that because I'm wondering if that was your experience as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'd never thought of it that way, but but absolutely true. You know, it, it is about performance when when it comes right down to it. But it is also about more than that. And it is. You know, I'm not sure exactly how you quantify feeling good. But when there's a good atmosphere on the bus as you're pulling up to the pool mm -hmm. where you're going to compete, um, you know, things tend to go better than if we've, you know, something's happened internally, you know, within the team and, you know, everybody's grouchy because, or, you know, we didn't get the right food that morning or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. I totally see that. That's, that's an interesting perspective. Well, let me ask you this, you know, when you coach men and uh, and the relays were occurring, right? Mm -hmm. What were the men doing right before the race? You know, you know when, when they're you know cl you know close to the starting blocks and you know basically just waiting for the race to start. Were they? Yeah. What was their behavior like? They're just being physical. You know, they're moving, being physical. Okay. Um, probably not talking to each other that much. I. You know, when I when I think about that moment, that's an interesting moment right before a person competes. Um, I, I think that's pretty similar, actually. I you know, and I'm just I'm just thinking in my memory of you know uh, watching a lot of kids right before the, the you know as they step up on the blocks. I I think that's fairly similar. You know, women are being physical; they're moving. You know, they know that there is. There is a physical and emotional challenge coming um, that they're going to have to face that they prepared for. All those emotions are are churning, and um, but yeah, I think I think it's primarily a physical and a focus sort of thing. Pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. the, the women might talk to each other a little bit more. There's a scene in the in the last gold uh, right before the USA. Um, steps up for the 400 freestyle relay in Montreal. And you do see, you see Babishoff come over and say something to Jill Sterkel. Jill Sterkel's 15 years old and she's going to win this relay. Her leg is going to, going to make it. So they win this relay yeah. and she outsplits everyone. And she swims third, I think in our relay. But anyway, um, she comes over, she talks to Sterkel, just says something to her, like who knows what she says. And then they, they're sort of passing each other um, in this in this moment in the film. So maybe there's a little bit of interaction, but what you do see is a lot of 
just physical preparation and focus, mental focus. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they, they, they share the same kind of intent of purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. All right. So the, the second assumption that people have of women is that they lack commitment and drive. Mm. Right. And so I want you to think about that. I'm just going to read off some, some facts is one research show that 70% of women prefer a career over a family. Men and women mm. want both, but men are not penalized for having a family, but women are. So numerous studies show that what does differ is the treatment mothers and fathers receive when they start a family. Women, but not men, are seen as needing support and often expected and even encouraged to ratchet back at work. As a result, they are rerouted into less taxing roles and assigned less demanding, lower status, less career enhancing projects. So it really it's really about the expectations that are coming from the from from the from management. But men's and women's desires and challenges with the work family balance are remarkably similar. It's what they experience at work once they become parents that puts them in a very different different place. So young women care deeply about the opportunity to advance. More than two-thirds of women under 30 want to be senior leaders, and well over half say advancement has become more important to them in the last two years. Mm. So you know, we're, you know, both at a place that is just a different kind of environment. The service academies are just different mm -hmm. and they attract a unique person, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, in your experience, do women lack commitment and drive? No, they don't lack commitment and drive. Uh, no, not at all. You can't show up for, uh, you know, if we, the NCAA limit is 20 hours per week of training. We probably got 14 hours a week if we were lucky. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't show up for that. that that's like having a part-time job. Plus the, you know, the transit from the academic area down to the athletic area and back. It's probably pretty close to 20 hours per week. It's like having a part-time job at a place where there are no athletic scholarships. So you're doing this voluntarily. Mm -hmm. Um you have commitment to your team. You have commitment to your own sport. You have it. I mean, by the time you show up in college at 18 as a swimmer, you've had a, uh, you probably started swimming year round when you were 12. So you're, you're swimming in the morning before school and in the afternoon after school, mm -hmm. five days a week, plus, a, plus an extra long Saturday morning practice. So that's the kind of environment that swimmers, female swimmers and male swimmers come out of. So there is no sport that commits more. My daughter played at a very high level of competitive soccer. And if she had more than three practices plus a game in a week, we started to complain about, you know, how busy we were. And that's just, you know, I don't know why I was complaining because, you know, I was off to morning practice. Um, but anyway, that's the uh, environment that swimmers come out of. So uh, there's no way you can say that that someone who's going to commit like that to those kind of hours. And then, and then we asked them to train at an NCAA collegiate competitive level. And we've had kids swim at the Olympic trials. And as you said, the NCAA champions, um, you don't do that without preparing for it. So you can't, it's not just about showing up. You got to show up and then you got to do the work mm -hmm. and, and then you got to go compete with, and then you got to come back 
on a Sunday night late and get up Monday morning and go to school. Mm-hmm. So it's a bone crushing kind of commitment. That's what I was, you know, I was so totally uh, respectful of, but energized by is that the, you know, the cadet athletes, you know, uh, not only at Air Force, but also Army and Navy, right, is that, you know, they're, they're, you know, you have to be a really good student to get in. All right. Yep. And, and they want to, you know, they want to do well academically, right. They're all striving yep. to do really well academically, but they also, you know, want to be all Americans and win national championships. Yeah. Okay? It's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, and, and a lot of people say, well, you can't have both. And I think you prove that, you know, that, that you can, and and I know my experience was that yeah if you know if if you have that kind of desire and then you provide them with the tools to do it well then they can excel in just about everything else that they're doing and I was always very impressed with uh, you know with your women uh, because they were so committed not not only to their own performance but to the team performance and that's something I, I that I think a lot of, of the listeners. Uh, may not be familiar with is how you know, even though it's it's labeled as an individual sport but mm-hmm. how team oriented it is yeah 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 how, and how I, I back, well i go back to what you said um, from the softball coach um when the team environment is happy uh it, it, the performance is there and you know i will say that performance is not less important to the outcome, I would say, mm-hmm. is not less important to female athletes. <clears throat> but I guess it's kept in pretty good perspective. Um, and, and by that, I, I mean, if a swimmer has done the preparation and they have you know, done everything within their power to prepare uh, plus all the other demands that you listed at the academy. And they go to a competition, the end of the year competition, you know, in swimming, you, you kind of put all your eggs in one basket and you wait to the end of the year, you train, 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 you kind of compress this, this spring, so to speak. And then you let your hand off and they get this rebound from all this training, you know, all this, um, all the, all the changes that have taken place over the course of a year of training. Um, and if that doesn't turn out, I feel like women do a pretty good job of keeping that in perspective. And, and I think failure has to be part of the conversation. I, I, you know, especially in sport where it is so black and white in a sport like swimming, you either did your best time or you didn't do your best time. And if you did your best time by two tenths of a second, you're happy. I mean, literally, we can train all year long for a 55 second race. And if you're two tenths of a second faster, you're pretty happy, mm-hmm. which seems absurd, but it's true. Because <laughs> um, at a, some point, two tenths of a second is hard to find. Um, yes, but if you're, if you're three seconds faster, you're ecstatic, right? Mm-hmm. But what if you go in and you're a second slower? And you train all those hours. And what does that, you know, I I think one of the things that I really had to grapple with and come to understand was just the the reality of some failure. 
along the way. And, and how are people going to handle that? Um, yeah, I've sat on the pool deck with um, kids who were in tears over, over you know, that, that kind of scenario I'm talking about. Um, I'm not sure what your original question was. It was about. <laughs> no, it was just about the you know the assumption that women lack commitment and drive, and obviously, oh, gosh, you know, they, yeah, they you know, they don't. Um, no. It's it's really about how they're treated that yeah. determines, yeah. right? And that really uh, leads into into the next area is that uh, contrary to popular belief, parity between men and women has failed to materialize, not because women prioritize their families over careers, negotiate poorly, lack confidence, or are too risk averse. All right, so meta-analysis of published studies show that these ideas are myths. Men and women actually have similar inclinations, attitudes, and skills. So what differs is how they are treated on the job. Women have less access to vital information, get less feedback from supervisors, and face other obstacles to advancement. So what it really comes down to, Casey, is expectations. Mm -hmm. right? And since you coach both men and women, right, mm -hmm. right, did, it, you, did you find that you had different expectations from one team to the next as far as what no. you expected out of them? Yeah, no. No, and 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 actually, uh, swimmers grow up in an environment where they train in the same setting with men. Well, men and women train together as boys and girls coming up through uh, USA swimming programs. Um, so they're very uh, accustomed to being in a competitive setting in a practice, men and women side by side. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, if, if anything, it's one of the few sports where you you really grow up with the very clear um, ability to see people, men and women train side by side and compete side by side. Um, and yeah, there is no difference that I have ever seen. Women want to win. I think differences come down to personalities and don't have any, whatever, whatever you would call that. I would call it personality. Um, you know, there are swimmers. I think you coat you, uh, you had one of my swimmers, Beth Zeman in a class, and um, back in when you were teaching mm -hmm. at the academy, and um, that was a woman I learned. I think I first really kind of saw um, a difference from how I competed. You know, I, you know, when you start coaching after being an athlete, you bring in all your assumptions about how you did it, and you have to get rid of all that over the years. <laughs> and so, one of the things I learned from Beth Zeman was, uh, you know, I, when I was a competitor, I, I swam in my own lane. I went as hard as I could. I did all the things that I knew I prepared for. And then I lived with the outcome. She was a woman who looks to her right and looked to her left and said, I'm going to beat everybody around me. Yes. <laughs> and, we and that is a whole different person. Yes. Um, so I would call that you know, that has nothing to do with gender. I don't think that's just being a human being and being wired in a certain way. Um, so that's she, the thing I learned. Yeah. Her, her mindset was more similar to a football player uh, of, of players who I coached. And, yeah. um, but you know, when you mention these assumptions, um, you know, uh, both you and I, you know, obviously you were an elite, uh, high-performing male athlete. I made it into the college level. 
And, you know, we think we know how to get other people to perform better, mm -hmm. you know, and then we get yep. out and we start to recognize that, well, wait a minute, people are different. You yeah. Know? Right. I'm not looking at a mirror. <laughs> yeah. So we have to learn to communicate with them. And I think one of the biggest problems in business is this idea of men and women are different. So we have to communicate with them differently. Yeah, and one of the things that I've learned, you know, primarily through uh, my uh, my counseling uh, program at the University of Kansas, is yes, you can look at you know uh, uh, different genders and different ethnic uh, backgrounds and come up with generalities about how to communicate with them. But ultimately, it comes down to how you're going to communicate with them right now, one on one. And are yeah. you saying something in a way that they can understand, rather than mm -hmm. assuming that they will understand everything you say? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay? yeah. So yeah. you know, Beth was. You know, I remember we talking about that. She's, she said, Doc, I really don't care what my time is. I just, you know, I just look up and down the line and I and say, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. I don't care if you have a lead, you know, going into yeah. the fourth leg. You know, she was yeah. so competitive. She just thrived on that competition where, you know, another person, not a male or a female, doesn't, it's not gender specific, would say, no, I just got to focus on what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. and, and do the best yeah. I can and, and focus on my race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, people are just wired a little bit differently. And once, you know, leaders begin to understand that, then they can adapt their message in order to get through yeah. to them in order to gain the best performance out of those people. So yeah. uh, these assumptions, I, I want to get into this. I'm glad you brought this up because, right? you know, as men, we think we know something. Okay. Sure. You know, by having some kind of success behind us. So we must yeah. know something, right? And yeah. then we get out Hope there. So. And so you said that, you know, Beth really, you know, helped you change as a coach. My my aha moment was um, my wife, Amy, was, um, was a really good student and she wanted to go back and get an MBA. And she looked at like four different schools and we decided on North Carolina and Chapel Hill and I immediately got a phone call from um, uh, an associate AD in charge of football and uh, offering me a job as like an assistant AD kind of thing. And I turned it down immediately. I don't even know why to this day, but it was more of a gut instinct thing. And I, uh, and I, and I'm really happy for that because when we went down there, I reached out to a, uh, uh, to a man I knew who I, you know, who's on the staff at the University of Virginia when I was a graduate assistant there, Dennis Craddock, who was then now the head track and field coach at okay. Carolina. And his women's program was the best in the ACC. And so for a football coach to come into a track and field environment where the women are the alphas, Right, because the men were good, but they 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 weren't competing for ACC championships at the time. The women were the you know, they were seven times straight indoor and outdoor champions, right? And so for me to be just basically you know as a volunteer coach, just to you know get, get an idea of what competitive women are about, right? Real quickly, I got the idea. I I, I got it. Well, they're no different than men. They just want to yeah. win. 
right? Because you know, whether it was at the University of Virginia or University of Delaware, right, where I coached football, it was really the whole focus was on winning. And you know, you spell fun, right. W-I-N. Right. And that's exactly how the women at Carolina were. And that was relevatory to me, but it really set me up for so much more success just communicating with women. Because you know, yeah. well, I had yeah. this. You know, my background being in football and in the military, I think I, you know, people will assume that I'm this, you know, yeah. you know, that, that I'm, I'm that guy. But actually, yeah. you know, I have a really talented wife and, and two daughters who are, you know, yeah. all I'm looking for. So this idea of parity. OK. And I know that, uh, you know, I remember when, when you were giving your speech at the Hall of Fame induction at the for, for the Air Force Academy, you were talking about that. You were talking about, you know, how you became a women, a, a, an advocate for women. How did you evolve into that? Gosh, that, that's a complicated question because, you know, I can see that um, tendency that that's sort of, uh, you know, cultural awareness right now that, you know, women don't need guys to ride in on a white horse and save the day, right? Mm -hmm. But I think at times, if you have, regardless of my gender, if you have the, if you have the perspective and you then you have the um, the opportunity to to affect some sort of change or or bring some sort of awareness to a to a certain situation, then I feel like you have to do it. In in the case, and I'll give you the best example that I have. In the case of the um, so in the the book um, Munich to Montreal, the the final thing is the, the USA women come together, four of them, in the final event of the meet, and they win the only gold medal won by anybody who wasn't from the Eastern Bloc. It's a miraculous victory. I mean, it's, everybody swims out of their mind, and, and it's just the crowd noise is, you don't get that, that, you know, it's like the crack of the bat when somebody hits a home run. Yeah. You get that in this swimming uh, stadium, but you get it for about three minutes straight. It's yeah. just amazing. Yeah. Um, um, so at any rate, the um, – oh gosh, I lost track of that. Um, of the, uh, uh, the women uh, swimming the race. The, right, the, yeah. yeah the women. Oh, oh, so have. the advocacy of it. Yeah. I, knew that whole, I knew that whole story. I knew I knew the training that Shirley Babishoff did. She was my lane mate. She was a tenacious trainer. I mean, she there's a moment where that's in the book where we're swimming a certain little workout set that's it's nothing complicated, but it is long, long swims on a short interval as hard as you can go. Mm -hmm. And it's me and Brian Goodell, who won two gold medals in Montreal and Shirley Babishoff, just the three of us. Mm -hmm. she is stroke for stroke with us all the way through this, this thing, which is outlandish. Yeah. And in the final, in the final repetition, she goes two seconds over the world record, the existing world record in the 800, which, you know, is mind blowing. This is in a, in a weekend practice session. So <laughs> she was an amazing, amazing competitor. Um, 
Now I've lost the track. Yeah. What were we just? Oh, so I knew I knew early I trained. I knew the the entire. Well, I had to learn the story of these Germans, but um, so then I have this unique perspective, and I and I feel like at that point it's a responsibility. I had waited for someone to tell this story, and no one had told it, and um, it would. I, I feel like, and this is purely uh, my opinion, but I feel like if this story had been reversed and these the men had been cheated the way the women were yeah i think we would have known a lot more about it i feel like it would have been a you know a movie a yeah. full hollywood production mm-hmm. um and um so anyway i feel like in that case regardless of my gender i've got somewhat of a responsibility to be an advocate for for what i know in that particular case so that's why i wrote that book um and I, and I think, you know, in terms of advocacy for women, if you're in a certain position, it, it doesn't matter who's being, if it been, if, if men had been, you know, had the same sort of obstacles. And I, I didn't perceive a whole lot of obstacles at the academy for women, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like everyone tries as hard as they can to keep in a, a level playing field. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are things that we're just unaware of that, that are difficulties for women, but um, I feel like if you if you're in a position for advocacy, you need to do it. And um, so that's that's really how I landed there. Yeah, but you, so you came through this advocacy by you know by by recognizing it wasn't even an assumption, but the fact that you know you're in the same lane. Yeah, as Shirley Babishoff, and she's doing the exact same workout under the sap, exact same standards and expectations. Right. Yeah. So that mold, I could see where that helped mold your uh, your mindset mm-hmm. on how to uh, coach women as well as men. There wasn't you really weren't you were you were coaching the men and women. You weren't coaching the men's team and then coaching the women's team. You were exactly. And I think this is one of the problems in business is that they try to segregate the men and the women and believe that the manager believes, well, I got to manage the the men different than than the women. And that's where they start to go off, you know, off the edge. But if they treat them with parity, okay, then, you know, then, then, then the expectations are the same. And the fact of the matter is that's what women (laughs) want. They want to be treated the same. They want to have the same expectations, right? So yeah. and it's just what sure. out of the research is that once women, you know, or men, you know, are, uh, you know, ha- uh, have a pregnancy, you know, within the family, the men are not treated any differently, but now they have to make plans for the women and what's going right. to happen, right? Yeah. We're actually... All right, whatever the family leave pro- program is, it is whether it's for men or women. And then when they come back, they're expected to do their job, right? Rather yeah. than ratchet back or to be uh, funneled into the mommy track or anything like that. And mm-hmm. you know, what, what I find is, you know, in, in, as far as an industry, I find law firms do a really good job of this because, really? yes, because their human capital is their product. Mm-hmm. All right. And and it's the same in sports. It comes down to human capital. But I think a lot of a lot of other industries and business, they don't see that they see they they, they don't see their how their workforce, how their human capital actually contributes to the product. Right. But if you treat both right, both genders 
as the same as far as contributing to the you know to to the end product right then those expectations uh, are the same and you're you know it it, it what I what I encourage the listeners to do is watch the movie My Fair Lady, right, mm-hmm. with Audrey Hepburn and uh, Rex Harrison. And if you don't know the story, go watch the movie because it's all about expectations. It's not. It's really not about your talent level. It's about what people expect from you, and that's where behavior will match the expectations placed on a person. That is a a psychological uh, truism as as one can get. And so mm-hmm. you know, every everybody that I meet, whether they're coaches or business leaders, I. Uh, we talk about expectations and maintain those expectations because people mm-hmm. will rise to them. If you lower the expectations, people will, will, will meet those as well. And so you, you know, you were such a great model for, you know, managing women because your expectations, you, you didn't treat the men any differently than the women. You didn't treat the women any differently from the men. They just saw you as the coach. That's very interesting. I never thought of it that way, but that is partly the culture. It is 100% the culture of, of of USA Swimming, how it's structured. And that's different than, you, you know, youth soccer. You, mm-hmm. you play with boys and girls when you're five and six, but then at some point, boys are on their team, girls are on their team. And it's like that in every sport, <clears throat> with the exception of, I mean, USA Swimming is an amazing, amazing um organization you know all one you know 95 percent volunteer run and um you know boys and girls men and women training together day in and day out very really unusual and i i've realized that before i've just never put it in a perspective that you just did about um, about management i have a question for you are you can i ask you a question certainly so you raised you raised two girls you and your wife are both professionals in reality, do you think that when it came down to, I know I know you and Amy strived because of who you are. You strive for equality in every aspect of raising your kids. Mm-hmm. Did there come a point where when it came right down to it, Amy was going to be the one who ran over and picked up one of your daughters and ran her to the uh, emergency care because she needed stitches or, you know, whatever the scenario is, arrange the, the babysitting for that week or whatever it was. I know you strive for equality, but wasn't it really 51% Amy? I want to, I want a true honest answer. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And men like to think, you know, as evolved as we are, uh, we like to think it's 50-50, but it's never 50-50. It is. <laughs> it's never 50-50. Uh, and as men, the, the 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 I think the best thing we can do is just say, you know, to our spouse, hey, you know, what can I do? All right. Mm-hmm. Is there, you know, because, you know, b- both our kids still live in the area and, you know, they both still have issues, you know, that we have to come in and something even happened this week. Right. And uh, Amy was the first one to be called. But then I had to pick up the slack because she, you know, she, her schedule isn't as flexible as mine. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I um, we try to keep it as even as possible. But I think from the viewpoint of the child is that they are more dependent upon 
the mother. And I think that's even true to this day. Uh, Maybe that's true. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I think you know we we try to do a couple of things as you know by raising our kids is reindeer, uh, raise them uh, in a gender neutral way uh, as well as a um, uh, neutral in terms of just society. And now that they're in their twenties, they're starting to see how the world works, and they're very frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. All right. <laughs> But they still have that baseline of how it could be because of the, uh, you know, the, the yeah. role models that they had in their mom and dad. So yeah, the fight, fighting the good fight. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's really an evolutionary thing. So, all right, let's talk about what women need. Okay. okay. So the extent to which employees are able to thrive and succeed at work depends partly on the kinds of opportunities and treatment they receive people are more likely to behave in ways that undermine their chances for success when they are disconnected from information networks, when they lack feedback, when they are judged or penalized disproportionately harshly for mistakes or failures. Unfortunately, women are more likely than men to encounter each of these situations. So obviously this wasn't a a problem within your program at the Air Force Academy because the three areas are inclusion, feedback, and fairness. Okay, but in the real world, and I'm sure you've seen this among some of your colleagues and contemporaries, is that uh, some male coaches may not treat females in the same way they treat their male athletes. Okay, so inclusion, let's just talk about inclusion first, because it really starts there, is that multiple studies show that women are less embedded in networks and and that offer opportunities to gather vital information and garner support. When women are less embedded, they are less aware of opportunities for stretch assignments and promotions. And as a result, their supervisors are in the dark about their ambitions. So those those informal relationships never really occur. Right. So yeah. one of the things that people don't know about the Air Force Academy is that the military component, it's just not about people marching around and uh, and shooting guns. OK, is that that's where, you know, the leadership opportunities are offered, where they uh, where cadets will rise through the ranks within their squadron or even within mm-hmm. the, uh, the wing itself for certain, um, you know, for certain positions that will help their air force career because the, the moment they step onto the, uh, onto base, you know, for, for their uh, basic cadet training, they're, they're being taught how to be a leader. And it's mm-hmm. a leadership training Institute. That's really what the, what the service academies are. So, yep. you know, I'm sure you had your share of, of, of squadron commanders, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and even wing commanders and, you know, people mm-hmm you know, cadets who rose through the ranks and, you know, as, you know, as the manager, you know, as the person who brought them, who recruited them to the Academy, did you ever get in their way or say, Hey, you really shouldn't put that. You really shouldn't pursue this because it's going to affect, you know, your swimming performance. Oh gosh. No, no, no. And the, the woman who comes to mind is a woman named Kim Davis. And to be honest, she was one of our top swimmers ever. I think she may have, uh, still to this day, she, she graduated at least 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, she may still have a school record or two. Um, so one of our highest performing swimmers. Um, 
And I didn't even know that she was pursuing uh, being squadron commander in her squadron, which is a huge responsibility. Mm-hmm. The one thing I said to her when, I mean, she didn't, even, she didn't ask me, she didn't feel the need to, you know, check in with me on it. She was, she had her life there kind of, and she had her life in the pool sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that they were completely separate, but you know, there, there's just a whole different dynamic in the, up in the squadron. So she's doing her thing up in the squadron to pursue this, um, this position. And, you know, she came down and said, Hey coach, guess what? I'm going to be a uh, squadron commander. I said, that's fantastic. You know, you're also in your senior year and, you know, you want to do well. And are you sure you can pull all this off? And she's like, Oh yeah, I got it. And that was the end of the conversation. And she did pull it off. Mm-hmm. There was a moment in uh, kind of mid season of her senior year where she was just run down. And I, I you know, if there's anything for managers to take away from this, I think, it's what you said earlier. It's about it's about individuals, uh, you know, taking notice of individuals, regardless of gender or whatever. Um, but there was a moment in in Kim's senior year where she's just run ragged, and she is the tank is empty, and you know, so we pulled back with her, and and you know, pulled back our side of it, and I, I did that, you know, numerous times with with numerous kids, just mm-hmm. to say you know, you need to take the next morning off and, and those sorts of things. But that's, that's just, you know, when you, you see, when you're a coach, you see people so many hours in a week and so many hours in a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know what it's like in a, in a work environment, whether you, you really have the opportunity to take notice of people in, a, in an office setting in that same way. But I think that's really the key. Mm-hmm. to um, to uh, to performance really is to be able as a coach or a manager to say okay not today you know the tank is empty whether you know it or not you know I'm gonna I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna say you know I know you pretty well we're gonna back off yeah and I think that that's really key well go slow to go fast and even in this uh, environment of hybrid work environments <clears throat> work environments, it becomes even more important for managers to pay more attention to their, you know, to their team members, right? Because, you know, you're spending 14, 15 hours a week with your, you know, with with those cadets, Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you know, some managers in the business world don't have that luxury, but it means that they should be paying even more attention. Um, but what I was really impressed when I was at the Academy is that you were the first coach that I came across. I, I worked with other coaches, you know, who male coaches who coach women who were extraordinary like yourself, right? But you were the first one to grant mental health days. Oh yeah. Mental health days. Yeah. Yeah. And this was in the mid nineties and you might've been doing it before that, but you were so far ahead of your time where people are just beginning to talk about that now. Right. And how important that is, is that, you know, most of us are, you know, are going a hundred miles an hour and then we put it as hard, you know, as as hard and fast as we can when we go a hundred miles an hour in another direction. Right. And you know, what, a lot of people don't understand is that we only have so much energy to start the day. 
right? We replenished at night and that's why sleep is so important, right? Yep. You know, how good your day is depends on how good a night rest you had, okay? Yep. Right? But then you have these energy pools and certain stressors will pull from these pools more than more, some more than one day and more than another day. And some days you just start with a lower amount of energy. And so it yeah, drains yeah. right away. And so I, I think just intuitively, you knew that, you know, not just, you know, it just wasn't for the women, right? It was for the men as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Days, okay. And so that was, I, I just thought was just so far ahead of its time. And I remember walking out of your office, you know, cause you know, you were talking about, oh yeah, she, she took a mental health day. And I was like, wait, what, what, what did you just say? And you explained what it was. And I remember walking out of the office go, how is not everybody else here doing, not doing that? Because they're all yeah. the same amount of, you know, stress and they all have the same amount of energy. Yeah. It's, it's seen almost as like failure and weakness, right. To, to take a day off. Yeah. And uh, so you, you got to change that thinking about it and say, this is about, this is about your performance. This is about what you're going to do. Not, today it's about what you're going to do in three weeks mm -hmm. um you know in our sport where we're where we're putting all our eggs in that final basket so yeah and I, I i yeah that's i sort of forgotten that phrase until you brought it up again that was that was a thing um and we we'd also you know in the mornings we'd have this energy we'd either have i mean people started training in the morning after they realized we were doing it. Swimming was doing it. Mm -hmm. Certain teams did. And, you know, we weren't on vacation down at the pool. We, we came down and we trained, you know, it wasn't like we we're trying to get out of marching <laughs> as a freshman. Um, so, you know, but, but there were days when everybody would come out on the pool deck and it was just like a cloud over everyone. And Same. we'd say, Hey, everybody find a spot on the pool deck and take a 15 minute power nap or five minute power nap even. And, and it just, nobody's going to sleep. They're too high strung to actually take a nap, yeah. but they're going to just take that deep breath and go, oh, the, there's no expectation on me for the next five minutes. Yeah. Other than Over the heart rate. Yeah. And, yeah. And just let things be for five or 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's, um, that's another thing that, that happened. And, and I think, you know, when you are, uh, I mean, the person who trains the most and works the hardest quite often in swimming swims the fastest. All right. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> just going to say there is that factor, but um, you know, so to have that level of expectation every time the team shows up is, and I know that's across all sports, but um, to be able to unplug that for even a minute, just mm -hmm. unplug that. Plus, as you mentioned, all the other factors at the academies, um, just be able to unplug it and say, you're a human being, take five minutes and just be a human being. Yeah. You know? yeah. All right. Let's talk we about, expect... go ahead. We don't expect anything of you for the next five minutes. Ready? Go. Exactly. Yeah. And just, you know, just, just find your own cocoon and just be yourself where yep. the other 23 hours and 55 minutes, somebody's yep. expecting you to do something. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah.
All right, let's talk about feedback. Research shows that women get less feedback and lower quality feedback from men, than men. People who receive little feedback are less able to assess their strengths, shore up their weaknesses, and judge their prospects for success, and are therefore less able to build the confidence they need to proactively seek promotions and make risky decisions. So this actually is part of inclusion. So where men are included into these informal networks, they're given feedback on a regular basis in a very casual manner. Well, what you need to do is this, right? Where women, right, they'll go in for their annual or biannual review and, 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 and the boss will just say, oh, you're doing fine. And the woman huh. goes, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Right? Yeah. Like, you know, give me something specific. And this is where I think, you know, your experience as, uh, uh, you know, as, as a top college coach is really important because, you, you know, I've been to your practices, right? And it's a very difficult teaching environment, right? Because <laughs> most of the time, your student who you're teaching, their head is underwater. Right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then when you do have a chance to speak with them, they're really tired. Yeah. Right. They're breathing okay. hard. All right. So yeah. how, you know, how did you structure your feedback? Because you're giving them feedback, not only on a daily basis, but throughout the day. All right. So what were you, you know, how did you structure your feedback and what were the things that you were really focused on giving them feedback on so they could improve? You know, I, I, the, the thing that just the image that pops into my mind might not answer your question, but I think it goes back to the to the other thing we said. If, if I needed to give somebody real feedback in a practice, they just came out of the practice. And, and so they came up onto the pool deck and we're now we're talking one on one and we're going to we're going to communicate right here. I'm not going to try to yell something that's important and substantial to you across seven lanes unless it's something that everybody already knows mm -hmm. that you're not doing right. We talked about a billion times. I'm going to scream that at you across the lanes. Mm -hmm. But if we, if someone needs feedback, they're going to come out of the practice and we're going to stand human being to human being. We're going to talk it over. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really, that goes back to the individual talking to the individual, knowing, knowing something about the individual. Um, so that's, you know, that one-on-one -on -one piece yeah. that was horrible in a, in a yeah. large team meeting. <laughs> well, you know, so let me stop you there because, you know, obviously I gave seminars to, you know, both the men's and women's teams, right? Yeah. And so I know how many, you know, cadet athletes that you would have at one time, right? Yeah. And this is the biggest um, resistance that managers have was, I have so many people. Really, mm -hmm. tell me how many people you have. Casey, why don't you tell all the listeners, right, when when you were coaching both the men and the women, how many yeah. cadet athletes were you responsible for? Uh, roughly 60. So, yeah, okay. 60 kids, 30 men, 30 women in okay. a good year where, you know, you don't get too much attrition in the upper classes. Uh -huh. um, yeah, 30 men, 30 women. And, and then you got some peripheral, you got some managers, team managers who help you with equipment and stuff. Okay. But And then um, also assistant coaches. Assistant coaches, yeah. And that can be... That can be a drain or it can be a, a huge help. So, mm -hmm. um, and luckily we have, you know, <laughs> assistant coaches who are a huge help more often than not. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that is that we, um, for the listeners, uh, coaches and myself, we're, we'd be assigned what you would know as TAs, teaching assistants, but they're 
in the Air Force, it's called casual status lieutenants. And they're right. just parking themselves until they go to pilot training. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're just recently graduated. And my philosophy with casual status lieutenants is just make sure I'm in the right place at the right time speaking to the right person or people. And they just kept my schedule, responded to my emails. But other than that, they really didn't have any responsibilities because one, yeah. my figure, my, 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 my rationale was this, Casey, is that they just came out of this incredibly stressful experience all right, and mm -hmm. they made it through, and now now they're now they're a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy. All right, but now they're about to enter pilot training, which is actually more stressful. Yeah. So yeah. I really just wanted to give them, you know, give them a break. And I told them, if you want to come in at ten o'clock and leave at two o'clock and take a two-hour lunch, you go right ahead. Just make <laughs> sure I'm in the right place at the right time, talking to the right people. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Right. That's a good way. You know, I, I occasionally with that with that particular kind of assistant helper, um, I would more often than not ask them not to do much coaching. I would just say, look, you know, because they they read something on the Internet and, you know, they'd be over telling a kid something they read on the Internet yesterday. And, you know, there's all kinds of crazy stuff on the Internet. Yeah. I just want them to filter it through my filter before they start spreading it as the gospel of the, the yeah. coaching staff. Yeah. University of Facebook is not an accredited institution. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> so, okay. All right. But this aspect of feedback is really important because in human performance, it has been proven time and time again, that feedback, accurate, timely feedback is the number one predictor of performance. So, you know, I, I just I just found yeah. it really valuable for the listeners to understand that yes, you can have many charges in your unit, right, to use a yeah, yeah. term, right? But yeah. you can still give that individual attention, even when you're you're only with them two hours a day, correct? Yeah, right. Right. right? And so you're still giving them the feedback that they need to get better. Yeah. 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 Um, and and it, and the way a swim practice is structured, you know, if the kid has grown up through sort of traditional swimming, the practice itself is set up for feedback because it's all based on time for a large to a large degree, um, at least the way I I practiced it. Um, so you know, I never thought about feedback that way a kid really gets a lot of feedback just within the environment of a swim practice because there's a huge clock on the wall and much of the practice is going to be structured around what your time was yeah. and and that's black and white it's yeah. not fuzzy at all yeah. and from an athletic standpoint they're getting feedback while they're actually in the pool feeling yeah. how the body feels and uh, uh you know from a cardiovascular standpoint but also from a mechanical standpoint as far as whether yeah. they're getting you know they're actually you know practice the instruction that that you've given them yeah exactly and I, one of the things i was going to say is i think it's i think it's important in terms of feedback to to listen well and mm -hmm. so a kid you know may come out of that environment and wonder why the person next to them they seem to do the exact same practice every day and they seem to uh, swim in a practice the exact same way. How is it that when we come to a race, 
you know, this person's significantly faster than me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got to, that's a, just an example of a question you might get. And, you know, I, I, so I think you got to listen as well and, and be, mm-hmm. you know, you got to be attuned to that because I don't, especially at the Academy, kids aren't going to bother to ask you twice. You know, they're going to, they're going to ask something and then they got to, then they got to move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So I think to be alert to, to just hearing, hearing what people are, are um, asking and, or even, you know, kind of being aware again of, uh, I don't know what all the factors are. They're, they're how they look that day and how they're acting that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when you get the chance to, to reach in and say, okay, what's, what's happening. And that's, I think for me, that was my most valuable way of giving feedback is that one-on-one yeah. interaction. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how many guests that I, we've had on the X Factor who at some point of their career as being a leader found that the that the most requisite leadership skill is listening. Yeah. yeah. Now, so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Uh, now, let's talk about the, the the final need, which is probably the most important, and that's fairness. And studies have shown that women's failures are more strongly scrutinized and punished more severely than men's. People who people who are scrutinized more carefully um, are less likely to speak up in meetings, particularly if they feel no one has their back. However, when 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 women fail to speak up, it is commonly assumed that they lack confidence in their ideas. And the bottom line is, confidence reduces when a person's margin of error is reduced. Right. So this thing about fairness. And actually, I was talking to Amy about this, uh, po- you know, this podcast episode yesterday, is that it all comes down to fairness, is that if women are not being treated fairly, if they're not being rewarded in the same way as men, even though they have the same expectations, right? you can have the same expectations and women can rise to those right? and even mm-hmm. exceed those. But if they're not being rewarded in the same way, then trust is, is lost. It's shot. It's gone. Right? And you yeah. never get that woman back. Mm-hmm. All right. So you're, you know, you, um, you coach women and they were highly successful and it was similar to the Carolina track experience where the women were the, you know, were the alphas. Okay. Yep. And, yep. you know, the men were working just as hard. Right. And they weren't seeing the same benefits as yep. the women were yep. because the, you know, cause I got to tell you at your, um, at, at your uh, banquet for the, the Hall of Fame induction, uh, I happened to be there as a guest of one of the football players. And the banquet hall was set up just like my classroom, right? <laughs> Where the majority of the students were football players and swimmer, women swimmers. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> but they were on opposite ends of the. Yeah. And back in the 90s, they were the two alpha programs. They were the two most successful programs. And I think they looked at each other with kind of a, you know, a, a, a snake eye, right? It's like, yeah, you're not as good as we are. And they're like, yeah, no, right. we actually are. And we're not. And, and they were both kind of competitive with each other. I could see that in my class. And I actually felt the same vibe in the banquet hall. So, yeah, it was really interesting. But that fairness of the reward, right? Yeah. Like, you know, your swimmers excelled in under the, you know, the NCA structure, 
that was you know you know that they could they could be recognized for for their efforts yeah. but within the but see that's that's just you know that that that's just the you know the uh, the icing on the cake but really right. what it comes down to is you know inside the team rooms in you know on the pool deck right in the pool and how each how each member of each team are looking at each other and having that respect for each other yeah. Yeah. Right. Is there a question there? What's well, the question? I'm, I'm getting to it. I'm thinking. Okay. <laughs> so um, that so so I think both groups saw that there was a sense of fairness within your program. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I see where you're going. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's so um, merit-driven. Uh, swimming is. You know, as I said, you could train all year and go two tenths of a second faster which is as fast as you can blink your eye and you're still happy. You're, you're ecstatic depending on, you know, how hard you tried to break that, that barrier. Um, so it's so internally merit oriented that I think it's built in. And so you get to celebrate with people, you know, you get to go, wow, sure enough, you did what you needed to do to, to make this, um, to have this achievement. And, it, and it's your achievement. It's not your parents' achievement. It's not your coach's achievement. It's not your lane mate's achievement. You might have people who contribute, but really it's it's yours. And no one can, you can't buy it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So, and you can't fake it. You got to do it. So um, it's so very merit oriented that I think a lot of that's built in. And I think the fairness, at least in, in my sport, is just not... You know, I didn't have to worry about playing time. I didn't have to worry about whether this this soccer forward is better than the other one. And they're sitting on the bench and they're angry. And, you know, I, I didn't have that dynamic to, to deal with. And I was grateful for it. Um, so I don't know in a business environment how how that shakes out where um, your performance is directly um, or your practice is directly tied to your performance whereas in swimming it is absolutely tied to the two in terms of um you know i i remember our men's team being a little bit expressing a little bit of jealousy over the women being as, as successful as they were mm -hmm. um i'm not sure we had been and these are just my thoughts but i'm not sure if the shoe had been on the other foot we would have heard openly on the pool deck somebody complaining about the men's team doing well they might have done it in the locker room kind of in their own little tribe area but um you know the guys would just kind of be openly like, oh they're not that great they're division two you know yeah. and yeah sure enough they are that great they're you know won all kinds of championships and excelled and you know just look at their times they're they're doing these amazing things anyway um so there was a little bit of that within our own team at the time, um, but, but not a lot. I don't think the men were ecstatic that the women were getting lots of extra attention. You know, the guys were competing in the Western Athletic Conference at the time, which is a, a whole different animal than the Western Athletic Conference is now. It was BYU and Utah and mm -hmm. New Mexico had a good team and a whole bunch of real strong swim teams. Now that, that, that conference is... Is, is very different, but um, 
and the, the current Mountain West is sort of an iteration of that old old Western Athletic Conference. But at any rate, they were you know they were duking it out in the middle of the Western Athletic Conference, and you know doing the same kinds of things and having the same intrinsic um, achievements or or joy at their achievements. Um, but they weren't getting, you know, the superintendent didn't come down to the pool deck and congratulate them like they did come down and, and talk to the women swimmers. So, um, yeah, I th- and, and again, I, I kind of um, am pretty proud of the way the academy did recognize the women swimmers at the time. In the second championship, uh, General Stein was with us. And he called back to the academy and he gave everybody the, a weekend pass because we had won the NCAA championship. Yeah. So suddenly, you know, the freshman in squadron three doesn't even know we have a women's swim team. It's going, what? We got a weekend pass because we some women's swim team did well. So it was a kind of, a, he, he made it uh, pretty well known. On the other hand, and I mentioned this at the Hall of Fame, there are a couple of women who should have been in the Hall of Fame 25 or 30 years ago and still are not. And I don't know the politics of the of how the Hall of Fame at the Air Force Academy works, and I, I kind of consider it a failure on my part not to have understood that um, because they really should have been in the Hall of Fame decades ago, and they're still not. Beth Zima is the biggest biggest one; she's five-time NCAA champion. We don't win. We don't win either one of those championships without Beth Zima. If you pull the number of points out that she's responsible for, we don't win either of those championships. And you can't – I think you can say that about one other swimmer, but there were two swimmers that were just so dominant that, um, yeah, they they had a lot of support, but there was yeah. – so anyway, why they've not been re- recognized, I don't know. Yeah. And I think if there were guys, they probably would have by now. Yeah, I'm just really impressed that the Air Force Academy has an athletics hall of fame now. And, uh, and, and, you know, just going to that one ceremony, ceremony, recognizing, you know, what the standard is. I mean, it's, it's a very high standard, but I'm also very grateful, you know, for my time there of the, you know, the coaches that I've worked with, like yourself, who are in, are in the hall of fame and, uh, and the, uh, and the uh, cadet athletes who I, you know, counseled, you know, who are also in the hall of fame. I'm like, that's really cool because it's a, uh, you know, it's it's different than, you know, than other Division One schools. The academies are just different because uh, the fact of the matter is, is you you don't get, you don't recruit, you know, the most talented athlete. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Um, you, you you get, but you get the best kids in the world. That's the yeah. thing. You know, and then right. whether, yeah. it's, whether it's due to their character or due to, uh, you know, a, a maturation process physically or emotionally uh, that they're able to uh, excel uh, while they're at the academy because they weren't that good in high school. Nobody would have projected them to be All-Americans or national champions, right. you know, yeah. or Heisman Trophy finalists or anything like that. Yeah. And then they come to the academy and just, you know, they, you know, they crush it under the yeah. most extreme circumstances and I that that i realized uh while i was there you know because of my state school experience you know the toughest part of the day is practice for for intercollegiate athletes all of them okay yeah. well the best part of the day for a cadet athlete is practice right so, exactly 
Yeah. You know, and and it's not that the coaches have any lower expectations, right? It's just that the environment that they're in is so much more demanding that, you know, in relation to all their other duties of the day, right? Practice is the most fun part. It's not the easiest part, but it's the most fun part. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that actually gave them an advantage when yeah. it came to competition. Yeah. In for, yeah. Uh, a psychological advantage. So it's yeah. just a different kind of a place. So this fairness thing is just so important is that you, you know, nobody the term now is called quiet quitting which means you know and and i've known about this for years is that you know uh somebody retires but they announce it three years later yeah right (laughs) and uh but that's due to you know but that that shows the level of commitment but that is a response to a stimulus of where they were not being treated fairly and yeah. it happens not it happens mostly with women, but it also happens with men, right? When they see other people getting ahead, when they haven't yeah. really put in the work, they haven't delivered the results that they have, but for whatever reason, the manager decides to promote this other person, right? Mm-hmm. And it just kills the culture. Yeah. Right? Sure. And that's the thing about, you know you being an elite coach is that you created the culture. So that's what I want to talk about now is these management uh, management applications. All right. So the thing, you know, what women want is having a manager who cares about their well-being. Right. That's what they want. And managers who fulfill women's needs will in turn accomplish three objectives. They'll retain the women leaders they already have. They'll help women develop their careers by providing leadership opportunities and they'll promote inclusion on their teams. And that's pretty much what we've been talking about for the past hour and a half, Casey. Right? Mm-hmm. This is what you've done. That's, you know, you've, you've applied these management techniques. And from mm-hmm. my standpoint, this is the reason why I, you know, invited you on is that, you you did this either intuitively or naturally with your teams at the Air Force Academy. And I want the listeners to 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 hear about it from you right? because it's it's not hard. Well, it's not. And it's 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 it makes it a joyful situation. Um, you know, that's really that's really the thing, as you said. Um it practice is the place where they go to let their hair down and, and just be, be people um, kind of revisit that kid that they were when they were 12, 13, 14, dreaming about coming to the Academy, what that all would be like. Um, and then, you know, getting into the reality of that and then coming down to the pool sort of reconnects them to that journey that they've had in building their career to that point in, in athletics. So, yeah, this is a joyful situation. And, you know, you don't, I don't, I would never have wanted to come to work and, you know, have it be for me a setting where I had to crack the whip and, and make something happen. Um, so that really, I guess, informed the way I coached, you know, I wanted it to be fun for me as, as well. So I'm not, you know, I was never a yeller screamer. I, you know, to set expectations is not difficult. Um, to hold on to them, that's probably the tricky part. But it's pretty, pretty. Um, as I said, the way swimming is structured with being based largely on time, <clears throat> there's no hiding from that. You know, there is 
So I guess my role was more of a support in navigating how am I going, how is an individual swimmer going to hold themselves to that high standard? How am I going to support them in, in helping them do that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, people want to achieve, whether they're men or women. Yeah. People want to be uh, accepted into an elite group, whether they're men or women. Right. People mm-hmm. want to be as good as they possibly can be, whether they're men or women. You know, these are primary psychological needs. And when managers recognize that rather than trying to parse out what's different between a man and woman in this, res- res- yeah. this respect, that respect, it only complicates things. But it, again, it comes down to not so much the genders or other stereotypes of how I have to speak to the group. It really comes down to getting to know that person individually. Mm-hmm finding out what their need, attending to their needs, and also speaking to them in a way that they can understand. And, you know, yep. you were, you, you were a master at that. And it was certainly a, uh, it, it was, it was not only a pleasure, but it was a privilege to work with you for those years. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Thanks, man. That's kind. I appreciate it. No, my pleasure. So in conclusion, managers need to deep dive, need to dive deeper into their beliefs, norms, practices, and policies to understand how they position women relative to men and how those different positions fuel inequality. And you just kept it simple. You never, you never bought into any, and yeah. you, just had a, you, you just kept, you know, you had very simple policies. You know, obviously you had a very simple mindset, but very, but very effective. And that's, yeah. you know, I, I think that's always the, uh, uh, the, uh, the beginning of a, of a really strong cultural foundation of, of human performance for both men and women. So, all right. well, Casey, uh, I really appreciate the time that you spent and I know you're, uh, I know high tide is coming. So you want to go out and catch the waves? <laughs> we're going to go kayaking. We're going to go kayaking. They saw, we saw the first whales. We're, we're in this area where, where the whales come from Alaska to give birth. And uh, so they'll be here now from December through March. So we're going to go out and kayak and see if we see some. Well, that's fantastic. I, I yeah. wish I could be there with you. All right, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. This has been the X Factor. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.